All right. Let us uh, turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 6. I'd ask you to be in prayer for my wife and her immediate family. My wife's father passed away this week uh, on, on Friday morning, as a matter of fact. Um, but we're very grateful that she had three or four days in this last couple of months, actually, just to, to really spend some time with him and with them. And um, So be in prayer for them, us. Uh, we'll be having a service, a funeral service on Tuesday. So just pray as the word goes forth that it would be comforting, uh, it would be truth um, that goes forth. Pray the hearts would just be ministered to through the whole process we would ask um, from you. Let's pray for a time in the book of Acts. Father, we, we are um, humbled to have your word. And Father, as we, we dig in and we learn, every time we're just reminded of what a gift, Lord, you have given us with your holy word placed in our hands that we can consider and we can apply and we can have you feed us with. And Lord, uh, once more, just in your mercy, by your grace, we're asking you would do that again um, for us. Use the word, Lord, in our lives, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're, on, we're in chapter 6 today, so that's where we're going to pick up in chapter 6. But I'll, I'll just remind you that by the time we get to chapter 6 with these opening five chapters, we've been observing that God has really been on the move through this church, his early church, um, and particularly there in the city of Jerusalem. And we've seen so many different examples of that as they would preach and people would respond, as they would extend their hand and people would be healed. All these things that we've been looking at, God has been on the move in this church in an exciting way. And we learned last week that word began to filter out uh, of Jerusalem. It began to go into the neighboring towns. Did you hear what is going on? People that would go into Jerusalem for the day would go out in the evening. And so people from all of those surrounding towns began to come. They wanted to see what was going on through the hands of the apostles, through the mouths of the apostles. And Jesus was doing what he said he would do. You remember in one of our first studies in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that Jesus said to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the utter ends of the earth. And that's exactly what is going on. The, the Christians who previously were running for their lives and hiding and denying the Lord in the presence of even children are now standing up boldly as they've been empowered by the Holy Spirit and God is using their testimony that they could be witnesses of Christ and many are coming to the faith. Now, while that's happening, it tells us in Acts chapter 5, notice, more than ever, verse 14, more than ever believers were added to the Lord. That's great. But while that is happening, what we also took notice of, there were some that weren't so interested and some that were actually pretty bothered by what this early church was doing, the religious leaders in particular. Not every, not every religious leader, but the majority of the religious leaders, the authorities there in Jerusalem were not so excited. We learned last week that they were angry and that they were jealous of both Jesus and now the apostles. And so they began to persecute the church. In one of our earlier studies, we saw the persecution came in the form of a strong warning. Don't you dare say another word about this Jesus. Remember the two words that are used, don't publicly proclaim him. We don't even want to hear you're privately talking about him in one of your homes. And if you do, you'll be in trouble. That was the persecution, the extent of the persecution. We saw last week that that was ratcheted up. 
And now it came to the point of where they literally skinned the disciples. They whipped them so that their, their backs, the skin of their backs was torn. The persecution has gone to another level because that's what would be needed to get these Christians to stop talking about Jesus. Or at least that's what the religious leaders thought. We saw in Acts 5.42, it didn't have that effect. And as a matter of fact, it says, and every day in the temple and from house to house, the church, the apostles, the believers did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Isn't that sweet? How could you, you, it doesn't matter what you do to me. I can't not say what I have seen and what I have heard. Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, has been raised from the dead, and it's by him that we now live, he said. Well, that brings us to where we left off, and so we pick up now in chapter 6, and I'll remind you one last thing. Uh, remember Luke's pattern. So Luke begins by looking inside the church, and he tells us a story about that. And then maybe the next portion of the chapter, the next chapter, he starts talking about the response outside of the church to the church. And then he goes back inside, and then outside, inside, and then outside. And so here we see Luke once more turns his attention to something inside of the church. And we begin this in chapter 6, verse 1. It reads this way. Now in those days... When the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples, and they said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to the duty of serving tables." But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands upon each of them. Now, once again, we remind ourselves that no church is a perfect church. And so even here, we have a church that is administered directly by the apostles of Jesus Christ, and it has problems and tension within it. Because again, no church is a perfect church. We took place in Acts chapter 5, where a particular couple in pride decided to play the hypocrite. And we learned the lesson of those. That was the lesson of Ananias and Sapphira who wanted to look better than they actually were so that people would be impressed with them. They were within the church and we saw their example here. Here now we see another problem arising within the church. And it does so as a result of differing parties having differing perceptions of a particular circumstance. So back in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, there we have an example of two people deliberately setting out to deceive others and to sin, essentially, against others. A couple that willfully makes the decision to do what they wanted to do, sin against God and sin against the congregation. That's not what is going on here, which I appreciate, because sometimes we have problems 
not because of any ill intent on our parts, just because we're imperfect people. In the Acts chapter 5 situation with Ananias and Sapphira, two people deliberately set out to sin against one another. In this particular instance that we're going to delve in today, you have less than perfect people interacting with less than perfect people, and the result is that one offends the other. It happens. It's a sort of place that well-meaning people like many of us here find ourselves in with regularity. And so I think this can speak to us today. Now this specific disagreement found itself, as we read in verse 1, in regard to the daily distribution to the widows of the congregation. I'll read it to you. Now in these days, when the disciples were growing, increasing, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now the Jewish people and the Christian church that came afterwards and came out of the Jewish faith, the Jewish people regularly collected offerings for the purpose of distribution among the widows. All right, that was just the norm. And so you might give your regular offering, and then we're going to take a second offering, or there's going to be a little bucket over here on the side where you would regularly give an offering for the widows or the orphans also as well. But in this context today, it's talking about the widows. Widows in that day were potentially the most destitute people of ancient society. We just spent some time Wednesday night talking about how it was up until the 1930s, even in America, that the most impoverished group of people in the United States were widows in America, where they had no social security or anything like that at that time to fall back on. And so in ancient society, potentially the most destitute people of the society were widows, particularly those that didn't have a family to look to for care and for support, those that Paul calls truly widows. Paul would write this in the book of 1 Timothy. He would say, honor widows who are truly widows. And by that, what he meant was if they didn't have a particular family, sons, daughters, um, et cetera, that they could be supported by and helped uh, through, then they became true widows in Paul's sense of the term. And Paul says, honor them, care for them, meet their needs. And so for a couple of thousands of years of Jewish history and practice, the responsibility fell on the Jewish authorities to care for, honor, those that were truly widows. And perhaps, we don't know for sure, but perhaps as a result of the growing divide that was developing between the Jews and this sect, the Christians, those Christian widows were not being cared for any longer. We can imagine, we've seen examples of this. Look, if you want to associate with that church over there, we're not going to provide for your needs any longer over here. And so here now are these Christian widows that are finding life to be difficult. And they're looking for their leaders to support them, to help them, to provide for them. And the church rose up to meet the challenge, as the church should. And it began to meet the needs of these ladies. Now, Paul gives a very lengthy teaching on this, probably about 30 years later. Paul gives a very lengthy teaching on what the role of the local body of believers should be in caring for the widows. I think today we might expand that. 
to single moms and things like that, or folks that are definitely, truly in need. Paul talks about it, and I really encourage you to read it and consider. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 3 through 16. I'm not going to go there today, but I encourage you to go there because it's a very detailed understanding of it. And 30 years after the fact, you can imagine the process became abused to some degree, where some people are, this is great. I can just sit back and people bring me meals and they get it all set up and I can tell them where I want it and, and all this kind of stuff. And so Paul had to address kind of the abuse that developed in the system. That's why I think he adds the word, those that are truly widows. He'll also talk about how some now they have all this time on their hand. They just go about, Paul says, they go about being busybodies. And so he addresses that as well. All that you can find in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 3 to 16, and I'd encourage you to do so. But back here in the book of Acts, we have this rapidly growing congregation there in Jerusalem. People have their needs. We saw that before, in particular now the widows. And a potentially divisive issue arises within the congregation. Notice what Luke says in verse 1 toward the end. He says that a complaint arises or a complaint arose. A complaint arose between the Hellenist and the Hebrews. Now, we may not be familiar with that term. The Hebrews, that's probably pretty easy. The Hebrews were what I'll call the Jewish Jews, okay? Culturally, the Jewish Jews. The Hellenists were what we can call the Greek Jews. Now, all of these people are from a Jewish background. They've all adopted the Christian faith, recognizing Jesus to be the Messiah, but culturally, they were very different from one another. And so the Hebrews were your traditional Jewish Jews, and all that went with that, the, the language that they spoke, the dress that they wore, the things that the normal just sort of day-to-day -day things that they got involved with. Whereas the Hellenists, they were much more heavily Greek-influenced. Alexander the Great ruled over uh, the Greek Empire from about 355 to 320 B.C., and the empire itself would go on to rule the world for another couple of hundred years as well. And during the reign of Alexander the Great, the Greek culture pretty much spread to much of the known world. It had just sort of advanced itself. The Greek language advanced itself. The Greek dress advanced itself. The practices um, that were common uh, among the Greek advanced themselves as well. Philosophy of thinking, in some regard, advanced itself and so many of the Jews that were scattered around the world began to now adopt those practices. Religiously, I'm a Jew. Culturally, I'm much different than those people that live over there in Israel. I'm much more like the Greeks among whom I lived here. And those people became known as class? Hellenist. Very good. They became known as Hellenist. Now, as you can imagine, the Jewish Jews, who are the Hebrews, very good, all right, the Hebrews, they looked down upon the Hellenist. They looked down upon the Greek Jews. They looked down upon those that were compromising and, you know, living the way they were and, you know, all these other kinds of things. And so there was a natural cultural divide. And so you walk into the church and there are those people that like to sit over there or like to sit over there, and they look alike, they dress alike, they even talk alike. They're different. A divide was forming or potentially was forming within the church, a cultural rift. 
Is that something that we struggle with, you think, here in the United States? In the Christian church? Absolutely. It may not be over those kinds of cultural things, but it could be over things like socioeconomic status. It could be over educational status. It could be over racial issues. It could be over where you come from and your particular background and how you were raised and how that differs from where I came from and my background and so on. And so we, we can struggle with these same types of things here within our culture. culture. And here's the thing, without even really, really realizing it, where it's just sort of this natural idea to think differently about someone that we perceive to be different from ourselves. And because there's that little bit of a divide that is in there, whether we're even meaning to do it or not, that divide can get wider and wider and wider. And so then when natural problems potentially develop, because less than perfect people do less than perfect things, now in our growing divide and in our mind, we begin establishing reasons for why they did that. I know why she didn't come by here and shake my hand during the, the hand wave time that now they do in COVID, because I'm one of them and not one of, you see what I'm saying? And so naturally these things can begin to play within our minds. And that's what we're seeing here. There is a perception that one group is favoring, a, that this group is favoring their people and not all of the people. Whether that was actually occurring or not, I don't know. But as I was thinking about perceived divisions in our society, race, I told you, sex, socioeconomic status, political philosophy, there's a big one. I had people come in to our church here to tell me about stickers on certain people's cars supporting certain candidates and how I should go talk to them and explain to them why they're wrong. What? I'm not going there. You go talk to them if you think they're wrong. Whether you wear a mask or not whether you're going to get the vaccine or not. We're divided over these things, even in the church. Sports teams. We're, like, people are seriously divided over it. Sadly, sports. Oh, you like soccer? I don't like soccer. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for registering your opinion. You know, I don't, whatever, do whatever you want to do. You see what I'm saying? And so we divide naturally over all these things because we are less than perfect people. But there's a potential for division that exists almost in every turn, and we gotta be very careful. So in this case here, back in Acts chapter six, the, the division, or the perceived division, is over one group feeling they're being uh, neglected, or treated less than another group that is out there. So the widows here, in the Greek-speaking communities, felt they were being neglected by those in the Jewish community, the cultural Jewish community, and the the misunderstandings developed, the complaint was registered. We see that there in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. We don't know if there was any deliberate purpose of the Hebrew Christians to do this particular thing. It doesn't actually say it. It doesn't say that it was actually even happening. But the perception on the part of the Hellenist is that it was. And it was beginning to cause a divide. And what the Hellenists then do wisely is they bring it to the attention of the leaders of the congregation, in this case, the apostles. And they go to the apostles, apostles and they lay it out, this is, how, this is what is going on, this is how we're feeling about what is going on. Let me just say this before we move on. 
take notice of the way in which the enemy, the enemy of our faith, we've been looking at him, uh, Satan, take notice with the way that Satan is attacking this early church here in Acts chapter 6. Remember, Satan has no, desi no desire to see God's church thrive. If I had to simplify the goals of Satan, I would say it's two. Number one, keep people from coming to Jesus. Number two, those that do come to Jesus, make them as ineffective as he possibly can. And here we see Satan's particular goal as the church is thriving. More than ever, people are believing. We saw here, Satan is working overtime to sow disruption among the congregation. And so we saw back in, cha in Acts chapters 3 and 4, he sought to intimidate the leaders with the form of persecution. We saw in chapter 5 how he, he sought to uh, inspire some of the believers to deliberately deceive others and divide the congregation in that way. We saw in chapter 5 how he ratcheted up the persecution to the point where the people were actually, the apostles were actually being beaten. And here now, what we see he tr him trying to do is sow discord in the church to get little whisper campaigns going on. And this person becoming embittered toward that particular person. To get into people's minds, we talked about the passage in Ephesians with the flaming arrows of the evil one, these little thoughts that enter into your heart and into your mind. People begin whispering amongst themselves, hey, is it me? Or do you notice with me that they hand out the food that always goes to those people first? Am I crazy or am I the only one seeing that? Well, those thoughts begin floating around in your head and you, you raise up the courage to, in the bathroom, you know, tell the lady next to you or the guy next to you. Do you ever notice that the portions that the Jewish women get seem to be more than what we get? You ever notice the apostles, they never come to check on us. I never get a phone call from the apostles. They don't seem to care about us. And what happens is, as those thoughts begin to enter in and those little conversations begin to develop, a wedge of division is driven. And it divides these two groups further and further and further away from one another, and soon bitterness sets, sets in. And Satan knows here in these early chapters, and I don't know this personally, I can just draw my conclusions, he sees that he has to busy himself in order to hinder God's work, find access to the hearts of God's people, get them murmuring about a perceived slight or an actual slight. And let's be honest, many of us have been in the church a long time. Many a church has been divided by that tactic of the evil one. And we need to be on our guard against it as believers. Well. We're a good church. I mean, even good churches don't have problems, right? Every church has less than perfect conditions because it's made up of less than perfect people. But there are ways that we can minimize potential problems and points of division. First here, I think wisely, we see the Hellenist, these Greek Jews, addressing the matter. They don't just get in their little corners and they don't just whisper amongst themselves about the issue, but they actually address the matter. As we share life together with one another, 
sometimes we have to have difficult conversations with one another in love, in humility, but have difficult conversations with one another. The Hellenists, they make their way to the apostles and they let their concern be known to the apostles. They make them aware because the apostles may not know anything that is going on necessarily. I suspect they were busy with some other things, like healing the wounds from the beating they just received. And so they don't even know about it. And then the Hellenists could sit there and say, I can't believe they're not doing anything about it. Oh, you mean the thing that they don't know anything about? But see, it develops, and it gets into our heads, and soon it gets down into our hearts. The second group that's wise are the apostles. They actually respond. I say they are wise because they could have easily, this whole thing could have easily gone from bad to worse. Worse. If the, the Greek Jews came to the apostles, presented their concern to them, the apostles could have said, you know what? Stop your belly aching. You should be happy that you get anything at all. Now get out of here. That would be bad, don't you think? They could have said, well, you know what? If you don't like the way things are run here, you could head down the street and find another church. They could have said that. They could have said, you'll get nothing, especially now, until you learn your lesson. It's like that, uh, the beatings will stop once morale improves or something like that. You know what I mean? And so you'll get nothing, especially now, and you'll like it. That's how they could have responded. And I think all of us know that would have been a mistake. That would have drove a wedge uh, even further. And here's how they did respond. Look at verse 2. Now the 12, that's the apostles, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples, and he said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Should the matter have been brought to the attention of the apostles? I think it should have. But I don't think it always has to be brought to the attention of the church leadership. Not every problem needs to be brought to the attention of the church leadership. More often than not, if God is revealing the problem to you, he's raising you up to be the solution to that particular problem. But what we also learn in the scriptures, Jesus's model, Jesus's method of conflict resolution, Matthew chapter 18, Jesus said this, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Just the two of you, just between him or her and you alone. And if he listens, problem solved. You've gained your brother and all is well. You can move forward. Now, Jesus goes on. He explains, look, if that doesn't work, then you go back with another person or a couple of other people with the purpose of reconciliation with this brother, sister, and you attempt to work it out. And then if that doesn't work, then you bring it to the attention of the leaders of the church. And so that's the normal sort of order of things. That's Jesus's method of resolving conflict among his people. In this case, the matter is brought to the apostles. And as I said, they wisely respond. Again, the 12 summoned the full number. They said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. Therefore, this is the important part. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we, the apostles, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so halfway through, I said, this is important. What's important about it is, though the disciples don't ignore the problem, they address the issue. Now, they recognize that it's not their particular responsibility, not their particular calling 
to directly handle the problem, but they don't ignore the problem. They make sure the problem is addressed. They say here, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So they recognize it's an important issue, but that it's not an issue that should divert them from their primary goal or calling that Jesus had given them. Now on the surface, we look at that, I do, and it seems a bit arrogant on the part of the apostles. Anybody agree with me? It kind of looks like, why won't you? No, just this guy, me and him, are the only two people that think this way? Okay, well, all right, brother. Uh, and so uh, you look at it on the surface, and you think, my, these guys are a little bit arrogant. At least, again, me and my brother do. They think like serving tables is beneath them. I'm an apostle. I don't serve. That's not what they're saying. You don't, I was thinking of this, you don't want the pilot of your airplane serving you your drinks on the airplane. Somebody else has that responsibility. The pilot has, and they don't switch jobs for fun. All right, the pilot is trained to do what he or she does, and that's the role that we want that person to be in. The apostles here had a particular responsibility. So their statement is not about their unwillingness to serve in a particular way. Because again, there are only so many hours in every day, and there are only so many hours in every week, and they can either spend their time distributing food or distributing the word of God. And what they were called to do was the latter. Go ye into all the world and preach. That's what they were called to do. And so they explained that they needed to remain faithful to that central calling, which again, look in verse 4, was prayer and the ministry of the word. That was their central calling. That was their holy calling. And for them to spend time administering to the practical needs of widows, it would have diverted them from their central calling. The entire church would have been weakened if they had done so. And so in that, I see even another strategy of Satan here. Distract the leaders from what it was that God had called them to do. Get them busy running around doing all kinds of other things. Get them busy involved with all sorts of other things. Take away their attention from the study of God's word, the presentation of God's word, and prayer, and you'll have a weak congregation soon enough. I have some friends here in this church that were parts of other churches where that very thing happened. And the pastor got so involved in so many other community things that his sermons began to suffer. His study of the word and his ministry of the word, both from the pulpit and individually in the lives of his congregation, began to suffer. And the whole congregation was weaker as a result. Satan's strategy, get him busy doing all kinds of other stuff. Keep him busy doing all kinds of other stuff and the ministry of the word will suffer. Well, these apostles realize, and wisely, they say, look, important issue, but not something that we should be directly involved with ourselves administering. As the ministry, this is outside the Bible, as the ministry has developed in our society and become sort of a full-time profession, you know, so people, they go to college and school and all that. They get a degree, and then they get on LinkedIn, and they find a job and, and all those kinds of stuff. And now this is my professional ministry. A tendency has developed, I think, in the American church, 
and I say American church because that's the one I'm familiar with, not so much around the world. But a tendency has developed in the American church where believers in the congregation begin to look to the professional to do the church stuff. That's why we hire you. So you should be out there mowing the lawn, and you should be over there visiting everyone in the hospital, and you should be teaching, and you should be praying for the sick. And the ministry now, the professional, does the ministry. That's not God's intent for the church, as Paul understood it, and I trust Paul. The Apostle Paul, he taught us in the book of uh, Ephesians. He said, God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, notice, to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And so the calling of the pastor, the elders of a congregation, is not necessarily to be doing the practical things of ministry as much as equip the saints to be strong, to be well-fed, that they may be able to go and do the practical work of the ministry. Paul will say also in that verse, it's their job to equip the saints to build up the body of Christ, and we do that through the teaching of the word and prayer, so that the body of Christ might mature to manhood or to adulthood. And I'll say this, if I, your pastor, the elders of our congregation, if we won't serve tables, that's a problem. If we won't push a vacuum, if we won't clean a toilet, if we won't do the practical things, that's a problem. That's probably an indicator of a leader that has forgotten what it means to lead, particularly in the church. Jesus told us, he called his disciples to them, Matthew chapter 20. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, they lured it over the people that they lead. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must become your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man, Jesus Christ himself, came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so if your pastor, your leader, feels as if that type of work is menial and beneath them in their grand education or whatever it might be, or the position that they have risen up to, that's a problem. And that speaks to the heart of that pastor. That being said, a pastor's calling is not the distribution of food. It was the distribution of the word of God, and these apostles in particular. And these apostles, they wisely realize that others should be chosen to handle the matter of serving tables. And we see that in verse 3. Now, I'll say this, just so you know, uh, where it uses the word or that, those couple of words together, serving tables, it doesn't actually mean becoming like a waiter. Serving tables has this idea, uh, it's, it's beyond just distributing food or drink to people. Serving tables actually speaks of handling the administration of the financial and practical details relevant to caring for the widows. 
And so this group of seven, they're not going to be running around feeding all these people necessarily, but they're the ones that are going to be deciding where do we buy the food, where can we get the best deal, how can we get it out there, who's going to cook it and prepare it on Monday, you know, who are we bringing on on Tuesday to do this. That's what it means there when it talks about serving tables. A table in that day referred to the place where uh, money could be traded or exchanged, where I could go buy some food and here give you some money for that. So these seven individuals that the apostles instruct for them to appoint, they're going to be selected to oversee the distribution of the monies, the provisions to the needy among the congregation. He tells them to pick seven of them. Why seven? Well, it's a spiritual sounding number. Seven is the number of completion in the Bible and all these kinds of things. We're not actually told why seven. It may be as simple as you're going to be Mondays, you're taking care of Tuesdays, you're taking care of Wednesdays. We're not actually told, but it could be something as simple and as practical uh, as that. What we are told is the type of men these guys are to be. So notice it says, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit, and of wisdom. Seven men of good repute, full of the spirit, and the way it's worded, and full of wisdom. So now notice, no manner of divine revelation. The, the apostles don't get in a room and God doesn't emblazon the name of the seven people on the wall or anything like that. You remember back in Acts chapter 5 when Ananias came in and he brought the gift and he's making his way out and Peter says, Ananias, why is it that God moved you to lie to the Holy Spirit in this way? In that case, it seems that God divinely revealed to Peter the answer to that particular dilemma. Here... We don't get any indication of that. I think we can ascertain, based on the type of men we know the apostles to be, that they got back together, they huddled up, they discussed you know, this complaint that came to them, they began to pray about it with one another, and they came up with a solution. Pick seven men from among yourselves of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit, and full of wisdom that we can appoint to this particular matter, to give attention to this particular matter. They're making an administrative decision here with the divinely inspired wisdom of God, but not necessarily the divinely revealed wisdom of God. And there's a difference. There's a distinction. They say, pick out from among you seven men. Now, let's take a look at the qualifications. Now, for some of us, well, we need a good shopper. That's what we need. We just need that yard sale lady or that, yard, that guy who knows how to get a deal and is cutthroat and will never take advantage that's not the skill that they're looking for. They're looking for character traits of these people. So the first thing they say is a person of good repute. Some versions translate this a good witness. We're looking for a person that has a good reputation with others. People that will look at that person and say, I trust him. I trust her. I've interacted with her in a number of different instances. First one here is a person that can be trusted. The second one is full of the Holy Spirit. And we've defined that term in some of our last studies, led by God's Spirit. Not led by self, not led by their own desires, led by God's Spirit. And then thirdly, full of wisdom. Now this speaks to the idea of having a knowledge, a practical knowledge of managing and handling resources knowing to where, where to go and get a good deal, know to how, knowing how to negotiate, 
knowing about the economy of scale, all those kinds of things, very practical types of things. That's not the only thing they needed to know. That's not the only trait they needed to possess. They needed to be full of the Holy Spirit. They needed to have a good reputation, a track record. But at the same time, they had to be practically wise in the management of money and resources. So their abilities are going to be just as important and considered as their spirituality. Not all of one, not all of the other, not even 50% of one and 50% of the other. 100% spiritual, 100% able, so that they can administer uh, leadership direction in the church. Too often in churches, people are appointed to this kind of a position, and you could, you could call these folks deacons in a body, because of the person's worldly success. And so you run a big company, or you're pretty wealthy, or you have a lot of money and a lot of people work for you, we're gonna put you in charge of this. Many churches, they do it because they know that person will also give a big donation along with the title as well. That's not what's factored into this occasion. The question, here's the questions you should be asking. What's the person's walk with Christ like? How are they doing submitting themselves and their ways to God's leading? What's their reputation in the community and the rest of the body? They're the kinds of questions that need to be being asked of these folks. The, the term I, I used earlier was deacons. The word there where it says serve tables, that word serve there is the Greek word diakonos. It's where we get the English word deacon. And some of you may or may not be familiar, there is a there's a position, particularly in the Protestant congregation, Catholic Church has one similar, but there's a position in the Protestant congregation of elders and of deacons. That's a role. Paul highlights them. He teaches, he explains uh, what the, the qualifications of those particular positions. But the idea here of a deacon at the root, it's the same word that is translated again, serve tables, at the root of the word deacon is this idea, serve. That's what a deacon is to do, is to serve others or to minister to others. So here in Acts chapter 6, these seven men aren't specifically called deacons, but the task that they're being raised up to do is essentially what a deacon would do in a church. And in the Acts passage, the qualifications are of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit, and full of practical wisdom. Again, you can go to another place in the scripture, 1 Timothy chapter 3, where the apostle Paul gives a more detailed description of the qualifications of folks for that role. And I am going to read you this one. Starting in chapter 3, it says, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, and then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. That's the idea of good repute. Their wives likewise, or some versions say, and the, the women, the females, likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons, they gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. All right, now, this isn't a study on 1 Timothy. 
one day, and I think our men just recently finished it, where we could dig into it, they could dig into it a little more here. But just notice this here about it. Notice the key role that character plays in the selection of these individuals. Now, some have asked, does Calvary Chapel have deacons? Absolutely. A church the size of ours wouldn't be able to properly function unless we had people fulfilling those roles. What we have never done here at Calvary Chapel is actually name people into that role. That doesn't mean that we don't have people fulfilling those roles. My concern with naming people to that role of serving in that practical way is those that aren't named to that role. Well, it ain't my job to pick that up. Where are the deacons? Call them to vacuum over here. What I'd much rather see is God move on a person's heart. Could you show me where to get a vacuum so that they can do that particular thing? We have deacons here at our congregation. I have a team of eight men, uh, happens to be men, that help me administer the finances of these church. When I became pastor of the congregation, the largest budget that I had ever oversaw and managed was $4,000 a year. I was the head coach of a soccer team. They gave me $4,000 and said, buy what you need to buy for the team. That was the largest budget I ever managed. And now I have to come and manage the budget of a congregation of two, 300 people. I needed the help of other people, skilled people in those particular areas. We have eight that helped me with that. They're our financial advisory board. I see those men as deacons in our congregation, servants of our congregation, not just wealthy people, not just people that know how to do stuff with money and things like that, men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit, and a whole lot more wisdom in those areas than I have. We have deacons in our church. We have men and women that serve our body by taking the care of the physical needs of this facility and by meeting the practical needs of members of the congregation and their personal homes and things like that. Whether it be widows, again, a modern day equivalent, I think are single moms, orphans, and things like that. Sometimes even college students that come to our area that don't have sort of, you know, mom and dad close by, and people in our congregation ministering and meeting the needs of those individuals. I see them as fulfilling the role of deacons in our church, serving the body. We have folks in this congregation that fix vehicles to keep them on the road for the ministry that is going on. Mowing lawns uh, for some of the widows of our congregation or other circumstances similar. People that run wires here for hours to make what happens here happen here on a Sunday morning, a Wednesday night, or any other time. People that come in early and flip waffles. They're my favorite deacons. Those that make the waffles for the men's breakfast or for our Easter breakfast or whatever it might be. People that come in here and are cleaning our bathrooms so that when you go into it, you're not at once at all thinking, I'll wait till I go home because it's clean. Somebody did that. It doesn't just happen, friends, but people did that. Shoveling snow, blowing leaves, going out on the street, handing out waters. These are the deacons of our congregation. And I can do all of those things. The elders of our congregation, many of them are still young enough and healthy enough. We can do these particular things, but at the expense of what? Because that takes time. It takes time to do these things. And faithful brothers and sisters in our congregation, without a title, without a, hey, I'd like you to help me here by cleaning bathrooms and to pay you for it, I'll give you a title. 
You don't have to do that because God moves in the heart of his people to serve the rest of the body. And I think that's good and I think that's healthy. And that's what we see here because, again, the elders can then keep themselves busy with what God has called them to do, praying for the congregation, teaching the congregation, equipping the saints. Let's go on. Oh, it's getting late. Verse 5. Now, what they said pleased the whole congregation. This is awesome. You guys are so smart. You're Solomon smart. And so they chose Stephen, who was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, Philip and Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, and Parmenas, Parmenas, and Nicholas, who was a proselyte, a convert to the Jewish faith. They say, great idea. So God now confirms the wisdom of the apostles in the hearts and mind there of the congregation. And this congregation, if you look at uh, verse 5, it, refer, it says the whole gathering. Uh, back in verse 2, it said the full number of the, disciple, the disciples. So this congregation, the whole church, notice the Jewish Jews, remember them, the Hebrews, and the Greek Jews, the Hellenists, all come together and say, brilliant, great idea. And they put forward seven names, I read the names on a few occasions already here. One of the things you may not realize, or maybe you do as you look at the names, they're all Greek names. They're not Jewish names. So they're all Hellenist that they've selected for this, particular, for this particular role. And I think that is a mark of wisdom and humility on the part of this early body here. Humility because the, the Hebrew Jews could have said, well, you know, if we give all of the authority to these Greek Jews to decide how can we trust them? Soon our moms are going to be upset or, you know, or things like that. And so there was a measure of humility that says, you know what, I'm going to leave it with you and I'm going to leave it with the Lord here. And hence, we go back to what qualifications do these people need to have? They need to be people of good reputation so that they can be trusted. And that's why Philip and Stephanus and Nicanus and Timon and Procurus and all the others were selected there. All right, so uh, no power play, no jockeying for position. Everybody desires peace and unity and harmony within this body of believers. And it takes a lot of humility for God's imperfect people to live together in peace and humility and in harmony with one another. Amen, friends? The Hebrew Christians there, you might say, laid down their rights for the good of others. And we need to do that. It was a most gracious concession on their part. But the love of God was working in such a way that these Hebrew Christians are like, look, I apologize. If there was something that I did, something that I said that gave you the perception that I cared more about this group than that group, I apologize. Why don't you take the lead? I trust you. You're my brother in the faith. And you take the lead with the distribution. Verse 6, 7, the, these they set before the apostles, they prayed, they laid their hands on them. Now notice that. Their job is primarily going to be non-spiritual. Just go down to the store, buy the food they need to, make sure the checks are written, make sure there's money in the bank to write those checks. It's primarily a practical thing that they're going to do, but it's a spiritual thing. That It's a thing they need to do spiritually. And so they're, they're going to have... Uh, the hands of the apostles, they're going to be commissioned to this responsibility, entrusted with this particular responsibility. And then finally, verse 7, the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, 
and a great many, uh, even of the priests, became obedient to the faith. So just catch that. The word of God continued to go forth. As the administration of this important issue was divvied out to others that could do this particular job, the apostles could remain focused on teaching the word of God in prayer. And God blessed that. That's the way things are supposed to operate. Satan would have, looked, would have liked to see the apostles get off track. But wisely, they did not allow their attention to be diverted. And the word of God continued to increase. Notice who it even increased uh, among the priests. That might be the greatest miracle that we've seen so far in the book of Acts. Those that were so opposed to the gospel now coming to the faith themselves. So there's a lot of wisdom that is exercised here. It was a potentially divisive issue. Issues like this have divided churches for a, thousand, a couple thousand years. And because of their wisdom, because of their humility, they addressed it, they dealt with it, they didn't ignore it. They honored one another in the process. Each of them showed wisdom through the whole process, and God blessed it, and he advanced his church. Isn't that sweet? We're imperfect people. But God can do a sweet and a good work amongst us, even though we are. Amen? We walk in humility, we walk in love, and we submit ourselves to one another, and God blesses that. Praying that it'll bless you guys this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that, for this word. We thank you for all that was involved that uh, we can chew on, we can spend some time considering. And, and Lord, you're gracious, and we, uh, it, it, for me, it never ceases to amaze me that you can speak to hundreds of individual hearts through this same message about slightly different areas that every one of us is uniquely dealing with. And I pray that you would do that, Lord, this week. And you would use the things that we've considered today, maybe something to do with a potential division, maybe something to do maybe with serving. Perhaps it's fulfilling our calling faithfully and not getting sidetracked. Lord, there's a lot here, certainly. And Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would you minister to our hearts for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.